the CPHI podcast series. Welcome to the CPHI podcast series. I'm Lucy Chard, digital editor for CPHI Online, and in today's episode, I'm joined by James Mansa to discuss the political and market changes in the US pharma field at the minute. James Mansa is the president of Pantheon Strategies LLC. It's a consulting company focused on policy development and messaging policymakers. James brings over 20 years of government experience, having worked on campaigns and in executive staff positions spanning local, state and federal government. Most of his career has been focusing on advancing economic development in the pharmaceutical industry and assessing innovative therapies for patients. Previously, James served as head of office of the Government Affairs Department for a global pharmaceutical company. And in this role, he was responsible for all government affairs activity, as well as managing the patient assistance program, serving as chair of the political action committee and serving as chair of the corporate philanthropic committee. This podcast will aim to cover the recent changes in legislature around drug pricing in the USA and what this means for the global pharma market as well as the impact it will have on the US population in terms of access to medicine. The price negotiations with Medicare are targeting medications used in the treatment of many chronic diseases, such as cardiovascular disease and diabetes. We will take a look at what this means for people with chronic disease, and conversely, the impact on the individual pharma companies, and then more widely, on innovation across the whole industry. James was able to give such great context and insights to the conversation, remarking on different perspectives that all come into play, which was extremely valuable and really gave some food for thought. So thank you, James, for joining me today. We'll just jump in straight with the first question there then, just to give everybody a little bit of background and get everyone on the same page. Could you please give an overview of the U.S. pharma market? Sure. And thank you for having me. So as, as background, you know, as we look over time at where the pharmaceutical industry uh, plays a role in overall healthcare in the U.S., it's about 10% of every dollar. And it's been that way for decades in the U.S. Uh, however, if you go back around 10, 15 years ago, uh, some of the therapies that were coming out were actually cures as opposed to just treating a disease or treating a condition, uh, they were actually cures. And so the sticker price of some of those products as a result of that innovation were high and garnered attention that receives legislative hearings around the country. As As a matter of fact, you take that combined with the government being a larger purchaser. So if we look at the Kaiser Family Foundation had a report a few years ago that showed in 2004, Uh, 21% of purchases with combined Medicare and Medicaid were federal government. And then just in uh, 2015, 39%. Uh, So we've gone from 21% to 39% and even more now where we're going to be approaching half of products are covered by the government. So between some of these prices coming out that caught the attention and the rationale for why a price was so high on a product, you know, versus a uh, a molecule that's pressed versus a biologic, for example, th- those explanations don't fit on a bumper sticker. And so it became really popular to uh, attack the pharma industry for high prices. And, uh, you know, politicians are trying to control budgets and win favor. 
so <laughs> as we look at uh, some of the different legislative proposals that they've put forth, like the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act of 2021 uh, that contained a provision where companies would have to reimburse the government for product that wasn't injected into a patient, or the, the one that most people are talking about, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, those really got some traction. And they're also going to be large cost savers uh, for the federal government. So you mentioned uh, some of the specific legislature. Could you go into a bit more detail on some of the recent changes, such as the Inflation Reduction Act that you you mentioned there, and how this plays into things such as the cost of living crisis? So when the Biden administration came in, one of the areas that they ran on and several of uh, the members of the House and Senate that were elected at the same time frame was trying to, what they were saying was, rein in uh, drug pricing you know, as a result of that buzz that had happened over the previous decade of prices going up. You know, the first thing that was passed, uh, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act of 2021, most people just know that as how roads and bridges and renewable energies are are being funded. But in there, there was something that they call a pay for. uh, And that's, you know, how do we go and try to get some money to offset these other expenditures? And one of them was uh, what they call the uh, bio-waste reimbursement. So, you know, if you get a hundred milligrams of something to inject into a patient and let's say it might come in a hundred milliliter vial, but the patient only needs, you know, 50 milligrams, people were saying, well, why are we paying for the whole vial? Um, Just because that's how they package it. And so the government said anything beyond 10% waste, you're going to owe us back for. And so uh, that was something that they took a look at that was going to be a cost savings and help offset that or a pay for. And I personally was involved in working with the agency and trying to come up with uh, as equitable a solution as possible. So for example, if a product is low volume or especially viscous, that 10% doesn't necessarily uh, cover because you're going to need more than 10% to inject the amount into a patient. So that rule was just finalized uh, in the last few months, actually, even though it passed in 2021. Uh, and here we are, you know, two years later, coming up with the final rule. Similarly, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 has some things that are still being litigated that we'll get to later. So I'll give you a quick overview of actually what's in it. The first pillar is uh, the inflation rebates for Medicare Part B and Part D. Uh, For those who are listening that maybe don't know the difference between the two in in the U.S. government is um, when the government pays for a Part D product, you know, think of that as something you would take at home. Maybe it's your blood pressure medication or some other type of like oral pill. A Part B product is uh, administered at a physician's office. So think of that as maybe if you need an infusion or an injection. So they're, they're treated differently. What the government wanted to do was to make sure that you couldn't increase the price as a manufacturer beyond the cost of inflation. So what they did was uh, say, you're going to owe us whatever you increase beyond it back as a penalty. And one of the other things that they did was to make sure companies didn't all say, okay, well, the night before this becomes effective, we're going to increase our prices. And then that way, at least we have a better base period. Uh, the federal government thought that through in the legislation and they made the base periods uh, retroactive to 2021. So the decisions have already been made. That's something that may or may not come out in a court case because the basically the rules changed. And so if you were a manufacturer that made a decision then and now you're being penalized for it later, that could be grounds uh, what they would call ex post facto in litigation and, and sue on that. Um, so we'll, we'll see what 
what happens and uh, with that implementation. But for the most part, I think that's pretty cut and dry and going to go through and, and not much discussion around that. Pillar two is what they call the Medicare Part D redesign. I think the easiest way to explain this is what changed. Uh, so before, uh, seniors would have to pay up to like just over $7,000 out of pocket in an annual uh, cycle for their for their medications. And along the way, the amount, the percentage that they paid for a product versus the insurer versus the manufacturer changed at different levels. And so one of the things that this uh, legislation did was to cap the pocket out-of-pocket cost at $2,000 um, as opposed to just over $7,000. So clearly a great benefit for seniors, um, especially those with you know fixed incomes. You want to have some predictability and, and not go broke just trying to get your medication. But again, we go back to that whole, what's a pay for for, for that? And so uh, in this, previously there was a, a provision that required pharmaceutical manufacturers to pay 70% of the cost between uh, when, when a patient was paying between $4,430 to $7,050. They called that the donut hole, some people may have heard of, because there was phase one and then phase two, pharma companies had to come in and pay 70%, and then a patient would hit phase three, the catastrophic phase. So they called it the donut hole redesign for, for some folks that are not quite sure what the lingo is here in the States. <laughs> they ended up changing that to that a manufacturer is going to pay for, for any product, putting the patient between $480 to $2,000, they would pay 10% and then they would pay 20% for costs more than that. So in a nutshell, what that comes down to is as opposed to a manufacturer paying 70% for maybe one of the scripts, which would probably take the person through that donut hole into catastrophic phase since it's a you know $2,000 window. Now they're paying 10% on every single thing up front and then potentially 20% thereafter. So even though the percentages are lower, the aggregate cost to a manufacturer is going to be significantly higher. So they're paying all throughout that patient's journey pretty much. And then the third bucket is the direct price negotiation uh, for the Medicare program. This is the one that is the, depending who you talk to, $266 billion savings. Um, this is the one that has the government doing more outreach and being directly involved with drug pricing. You know, whereas the inflation rebate, for example, kind of limits how much more you're allowed to charge for a product after it's launched. The direct price negotiation is actually setting a price cap. Um, the government comes in and says, we're not going to pay any more than this for a product. And the way it works is starting this year in 2023, 10 products were selected from the Part D program. Um, so that's those at-home type products. And they're going to be effective after the negotiation period um, in 2026. So there's a little bit of a ramp up. There's no other product selected in 2024 because they figured it would be uh, harder to get the program going. But in 2025, they're going to select 15 products that will be effective in 2027. In 2026, they're going to select 15 products. And this is going to be for both Part D and B. So uh, in 2027, they're going to add another 20 products. So basically, we start out at 10, 15, 15, and 20, so that by the end of the fourth round of doing this, we're going to be at 60 products. And every year thereafter, they're going to add another 20. So it, this is just going to keep 
going until the government's negotiating for all the products on the list, but they're taking small chunks along the way. And the reason why this is concerning as far as innovation goes and why it's getting all the attention beyond the government having these price controls is how devastating it's going to be to a manufacturer and the innovation market in general. So if your product's been on the market uh, for nine to 11 years, you're going to only be reimbursed for 75%. The government's going to give you the ability to do that. So basically you're paying a 25% discount. Uh, If your product's been on the market 12 to 15 years, then the maximum the government would pay is 65%, right? So now you're down to a 35% discount. But here's the kicker. If you've had a product that's been on the market for more than 16 years, doesn't have generic competition or anything, the maximum they'll pay is 40%. So there are a lot of specialty products or products in rare disease states or things that are actually averting people having to have more costly and more damaging surgeries that the government's now going to say, we're only going to pay you up to 40%. So if the government is 50% of the business and they're only going to pay you 40%, then 50% of your business is losing 60% of your revenue. That's going to be catastrophic for companies trying to fill that hole. Yeah, absolutely. I actually just want to pick up on something you said just there about in terms of medicines for more rare diseases. I've spoken to quite a few experts in rare diseases. And one of the things there is that those are often the medicines that need almost more support, because they're they're a lot less well known, they're less in the public eye, you could say than like more well known diseases. So they don't get necessarily all that like funding and um they struggle with things on like trials and things like that so that seems like that would be quite a big hit for those kind of medications and the drug companies making those that seems like it could potentially be very detrimental to the patients yeah and that's a very good point that you brought up to try to make sure that innovation wasn't completely disadvantaged in this process uh, there was an exclusion for orphan drugs um, so if you're if you have an orphan indication and approved for one rare disease, then you'd be excluded as a manufacturer from this list. Same thing for plasma delivered products with less than two hundred million dollars in annual Medicare expenditures, or for Part B or D products that were less than uh, two hundred million. So, so they did try to make a carve out for some of those smaller products, but at the same time. If you have a, you know, oftentimes manufacturers try to seek other indications or reformulations of a product. Well, if you're being excluded from the list for having one indication, but then you go and you try to have it for another rare disease or another indication, and that puts you back in the crosshairs again, it may disincentivize you wanting to do that. Mm. That's quite a tricky situation to be in. I guess there's no, there's one of those things, there's no catch-all solution really to ensure that that kind of thing doesn't happen. So in terms of the wider impacts of this, uh, you've discussed how it can affect uh, the US market, but what influence will these changes have on, on the global pharma market? Do you think we'll be able to see see those changes and, and what impact that has on a more widespread scale? From an innovation side, uh, there there is a lot of uh, innovation done here in the U.S. that then once a product is created is then either manufactured or distributed around the world. And so, you know, anything that has a chilling effect, uh, which as we discussed, especially if you have a product that is, you know, you could lose suddenly 60% of your revenue uh, overnight, 
that has a chilling effect on innovation and the desire to take risk in the United States. And also, I think anything that has uh, uncertainty. So, you know, the, the Trump administration um, had their priorities that they were trying to advance around drug pricing. The Biden administration came in with the new Congress and had their own priorities. And so I think any manufacturer anywhere around the world, uh, until there is some predictability, you don't want to take um, large, costly risks. Um, so I think an innovation argument, um, that's going to be impactful. And then also, in some countries, like in, in Canada, for example, uh, when they take a look at how they will pay for a product, they look at a blend, or the goal is to try to take a look at a blend of what prices are around the world. You know, the U.S. market, especially um, for some of those products that the, the government will cap at 65% of the average manufacturer price or 40% of the average manufacturer price, that's going to also impact not only innovation, but pricing in other countries as well, as they look to the U.S. and, and try to figure out what the average or appropriate rate to pay for a product. Yeah, like benchmarking sort of thing. Exactly, yes. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, it definitely will have um, some more far-reaching effects. So, how will this impact the people? I know we touched on this maybe with the rare diseases, but if we talk about some of the other diseases and things like that that it's going to influence, how will this actually impact people's access to medicine? In the one sense, the immediate benefit is for for seniors, especially as we discussed, um, having that amount capped um, at less than half of what it was before, and I think. That is a, a wonderful thing. Um, however, I, I do think uh, when it comes to the potential for individuals that aren't part of a federal government purchasing program, this isn't going to really impact them beyond the fact that a product may not be available. One of the things I didn't mention before is um, because this was such a partisan issue in a nearly 50-50 uh, Congress, it had a pass using a legislative procedure called reconciliation. I'm not going to bore everybody with what that is, but essentially, if you don't have more than 60 votes in the Senate uh, to pass something, you basically have to pass something that only impacts how the government uses its budget. So it's not a policy issue, it's a budget issue. And as a result, this doesn't say that every entity that purchases pharmaceuticals is either going to get that you know, 75, 65, or 40% AMP cap. That's only for the federal government. So uh, for those that aren't um, eligible for Medicare, for example, if you're not a senior in the U.S. and you're, you know, somebody, you know, my age who's, you know, using a private plan, it's really still up to the plan and the negotiation between the manufacturer and the distributors along the way, the wholesalers, you name it, uh, to come up with a price. And so, there is a potential where if you're going to lose, you know, 50% of your revenue uh, that was coming from the federal government, you need to make that up somewhere, seeing, you know, potential price increases of the public market. And that's going to be a really interesting thing to see how that plays out over the, the next few years. Because, yeah, you might owe the, the federal government uh, money back if you increase prices. But if you're a company that your particular product is only doing 10% of the work with the federal government versus a, a product, let's say a cholesterol or osteoarthritis type product that's not a very senior specific product, you might say, okay, well, I'll, I'll take the price increase and I'll pay the U.S. penalty as a cost of doing business, but I'll make it up to the private sector. And so that just, again, goes back to, 
you know, anything that's adding complexity and confusion in the marketplace is, is just, I think, not good for people accessing medication. And so on the one hand, it's good to give this access and it's good for the government to save money. But I think the long-term effects haven't really been seen yet. And I think that's where we're going to run into some issues. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how, how the government deals with those issues when they, they arise in the future. We've talked about a few of those more common diseases in slightly older population. And we've seen that for the drugs that have been initially named in the drug price negotiations, those those first 10, those are drugs that are mostly seem to fall into this kind of category. So therefore, the chronic diseases like cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, could you explain why this is and what this means uh, really for these patients and whether we'll see the benefit there or maybe there'll be um, the other side of the coin for that as well? You know, when you when you look at the model for any pharma manufacturer, you know, not yet, the, at bare minimum, you have to recoup the manufacturing costs, the costs of just being in business, as well as the R&D for that product, but also the R&D for every product that didn't make it along the way. And so as we see, you know, some of these new products that have been coming out onto the market for the treatment of blood clots or heart failures or uh, Crohn's disease, uh, the, the chronic kidney disease, I mean, these were the types of products that were selected in the first 10. We were seeing products that were of a cost that reflects that R&D expenditure and manufacturing costs, but also they're products that hit uh, a large population, right? Um, especially as we take a look at uh, the more senior population. And so when the government is looking at this list, I think that, you know, the first thing that if I were them, I would do was to sort it by what are we spending the most money on? And then remove all the products that haven't been on the market that minimum nine years, right? That we can't negotiate with anyway, and then take a look at that list and just try to figure out how can we get the greatest savings the fastest, right? This is like, you know, any person, if you're looking at, do I pay off the car loan or the credit card with my limited money this month? I'm going to go after the thing that has the highest interest rate because, you know, I want to make sure that I can save money. That's what the government's doing. They're going after the things that are going to be most costly. An all too familiar uh, analogy. (laughs) For all of us. So I think that in this first round, we see things that are innovative, but also hit a very large population. As we go through and see that 15 and 15 and then 20 added, I think sooner than later, we're going to start to see some of the products that maybe not as many people are taking, but are so innovative or so difficult to manufacture. Some of your um, oncology medications that, you know, probably in round two and round three, we're going to start to see a little bit more diversity and not things that are, you know, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, you know, things that, that might have a larger population. You might see rare cancers that have more than one indication that could be eligible. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's, that's interesting as well with the different rounds. Do you think at any point, or has it been mentioned uh, at all in the act that when they're uh, looking at these rounds and adding more and more drugs to the list, is there going to be at any point a sort of stopgap to be like, look, let's have a second to reassess this or whether we just keep going, keep adding drugs to the list? No matter who is in the White House, any policy is going to have to go through Congress and anything that has a budget needs to originate in the House. And for those that aren't in the U.S., right now we have 
a lot of infighting amongst the political parties. You may have seen, you know, not only did we have several rounds before we elected a speaker, but for the first time in U.S. history, they just said we want to change our leadership and we're not, you know, no clear heir apparent. Um, so I think, long story short, to try to predict what Congress is going to do in a few years when I can't predict what they're going to do this week may be difficult. <laughs> but if I, follow, yeah. if I follow the logic of your question, I do think, at some point, there is going to be a need to take a look and say, we were realizing cost savings, but at what cost to the marketplace? You know, and I think if if people are saying, wow, we're, you know, we're, we're starting to see some of that spend. It's not just 10 percent in the healthcare sector anymore. Sector, We're now down to 8 percent there, but we're seeing increases in surgery or inpatient treatments and, and whatnot as a result that may or may not play a role in it. I also think a certain economic point of this, as you mentioned, the U.S. is a global leader in pharmaceutical manufacturing. And so if you're a company that says, maybe it's going to be so cost prohibitive, I don't want to sell my product to the federal government. I mean, if you if you don't participate in that program, you don't owe the discount. So maybe you're just going to sell XUS, or maybe you're going to move your corporate headquarters, or you know maybe your your next plant you're going to build is going to be not here. And so I think there's going to be some considerations from an economic development perspective as well. And then I also think the question on this is to see how things are playing out from the the patient side. Uh, you're going to have patient organizations that that obviously are interested in trying to get things is low cost and cutting edge as possible uh, for their patients. But if they also start to see um, that they're being adversely impacted, they may side with pharma and say, we need to do something about this. Yeah, there's so many options for how people are going to cope with the different changes, whether it's the companies and things like that. Like you say, um, it could be interesting to see whether companies do look to take move their headquarters and things like that. And yeah, I suppose on that, what do you think that from the pharma company's point of view in regard to their future innovation and in general, the future of the pharma industry, what's the wider impact of that going to be? What almost, I guess, newer trends even that this could end up funneling to? Yeah, that's that's very thoughtful. So for, for and this is just my opinion, but if we're looking ahead, I would say, you know, one of the new trends may be, you know, the the, the problem that I think really got the attention as I started at, at the beginning of this conversation was these products were coming out with really high sticker prices, but they also were cures to diseases, not treatment of diseases. And people didn't like that. Uh, and, and it was harder to explain why it costs so much. And that, you know, if you go and treat a patient at X dollars per year to manage something for their lifetime versus having a more significant investment in one year, but then not having to pay those annual premiums because you cured something, that's kind of in the weeds. It's not a quick bumper sticker argument. I, I think in the same thing, we're going to have uh, companies now uh, that are going to come out and say, well, if I can't increase the price of my product and I have nine years, so the government may want to negotiate and price cap me on my product, I'm just going to come out with an outrageous price because Otherwise, I can't recoup my R&D. And so it's it's interesting that the thing that they were going after pharma for, which was what they thought was inappropriately high list prices, now we're going to potentially see even higher ones coming out so that a company doesn't go under as a result of this. So I think that's one of the unforeseen things. And then to your point from an economic development perspective, you know, is uh, 
a company that's you know debating um, increasing manufacturing at one of their U.S. sites or putting the new line in uh, in a country where there might be lower labor rates or more relaxed environmental impact. You don't have to worry about the recapture of the water, or the once through air systems or things like that that cost U.S. manufacturing so much more, but also is a, is a real gold standard for manufacturing. They may start to, to push some decisions of companies when they look to do their expansions. It's all very ambiguous what's going to happen in the future um, from, from all of these changes. And I think it'll be very interesting to see how the pharma companies do uh, react and settle with the new legislature. And it's definitely an interesting sort of turn of events, as it were, to be really at the mercy of yeah, the US government decisions and how that could change in the future. But hopefully the effects on, on patients themselves, hopefully the idea that we are gaining greater access to medicine for the patients, hopefully that will come to fruition and we will be able to see that. Well, and I'll, I'll be honest with you too, Lucy. One of the things that remains to be seen is how this is all going to roll out. So some manufacturers, I think, are of the mindset, you know, the, the government effectively setting prices, that's outrageous. I'm not going to worry about it because I know that there's litigation right now to, to stop this. And then I think you have other manufacturers that are assuming they're going to get picked right away and trying to figure out how to fill that gap. And you've got everything in between. We saw at the end of September, because the U.S. chamber was trying to have an injunction uh, against this, and the ruling on that was basically there is no right for a company to do business with the government or not with the government. So if you don't like the program, then pull your products is essentially what the, what the rule uh, and so we we saw, you know, all these companies, I won't list them by name, uh, but uh, that were in, in round one here, this is the first 10 suing, understandably. But at the same time, since October 1st was the deadline to start negotiations with the government, they are effectively negotiating with the government while also suing the government. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I, I think a lot will be remain to be seen if they're successful, if this is struck down, if this is perhaps watered down in a certain way. That, that all is another variable in the process as well. But I think if, if I were advising uh, any of the companies that are listening right now, I would go in and take a look at your, your products, take a look at your, your data, probably 2022, 2021 government expenditures, and see where you rank compared to the others and how long you've been on the market and try to come up with a ballpark of when you may or may not be selected for this negotiation so that you know you can do right by your long-term planning as well as if you're a publicly traded company, your shareholders. Well, thank you so much, James. That was really, really interesting. Thank you for explaining all of the, the different elements that are coming into this very complicated um, market changes uh, at the minute. and. Um, yeah, I think advice there at the end for the, the companies are going to be really useful. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again to James for joining me. I think this is such an interesting and, of course, topical subject with the potential for so many different outcomes. I think hearing about the politics, the business side of things, as well as the patient point of view is so valuable to understanding how the future of the pharma market will play out. If you want to listen to more, please follow the CPHI podcast series available in all of the usual places and sign up to the CPHI online newsletter for updates about more of our content straight to your inbox. Thank you all for listening. See you next time.
Thank you for listening to the CPHI podcast series. For pharmaceutical news, webinars, events and more, visit cphionline.com. Thank you.